0: We're good. We are good. See, sometimes when I do things like that, only my mom could love me when I do things like that. But luckily, my mom is here. So in spite of all you people saying, oh my gosh, look at this idiot, my mom is saying, you know what? I still love my son, even though he ruins his microphone. So we are glad that you were here for Mother's Day, and we are thankful for mothers. We are thankful for all that mothers provide for us, all that mothers do for us, and you are worthy of honor. But as Joshua mentioned earlier in the service, we also want to lift up those mothers who struggle with this day. Because maybe you lost a mother. Maybe you've lost a child. Maybe you don't have the best relationship with your mother. But we do pray for you. And the good thing about being a follower of Christ, one of the many good things about being a follower of Christ, is that when we lose our mothers or when we lose our children, those who have faith in Christ realize that we see them again. We see them again, and it's never goodbye, it's only so long. So we're glad that mothers are here, we're glad that we're able to worship with you this morning. So if you have a Bible with you, we've been going through the Gospel of Mark for the past several weeks. We're going to continue going through the Gospel of Mark today in chapter 6. And up to this point, we've seen a lot of things about Jesus. We've seen miracles, we've seen teachings, we've seen healings. We even saw a resurrection from the dead last week. That was a pretty intense miracle that we saw there and last week we looked at three different miracle accounts the first miracle account was about a guy who lived among the tombs and really he was a total freak he really was he was a monster he lived among the tombs he was totally outcast he ran around screaming he cut himself with stones because he was possessed by this demon And when he sees Jesus, he comes to Jesus and he begs Jesus to heal him. But then the demon takes over. And this conversation starts happening between Jesus and this demon. And Jesus casts out the demon into a herd of pigs. And then the pigs run into the sea and die. Kind of a weird story. But there was definitely a point there. The second story we looked at was about a guy named Jairus. And Jairus was a very influential... Affluent respected religious leader and he comes to jesus and begs jesus to heal his daughter His daughter is dying She's on her deathbed and he has nowhere else to go It's too late to try anything else. And so he figures you know what i'll give this jesus guy a shot So he goes before jesus and begs him to heal his daughter Jesus agrees and they begin walking to his daughter But then a woman steps on the scene who really throws things off who really just causes a problem for Jairus because she begs Jesus to heal her. She has this flow of blood that has caused her to be considered unclean, and so she begs Jesus to heal her. She says that she's tried everything. She's gone to doctors. She's tried different cures. She's tried everything, all the t- uh, you know, TV ads she saw. She tried them, and nothing worked. And so she comes to Jesus, and she begs, begs him to heal her, and he does just that. He heals her. And she goes away experiencing grace and mercy the way she never had before. But the problem was that while this lady was being healed, Jairus' daughter died. During that conversation, Jairus' daughter died. And if only that conversation wouldn't have taken place. If Jesus hadn't been stopped along the way, he probably could have gotten there in time. But she died. All the hope is lost. It wouldn't have been a very good Mother's Day for Jairus's wife but sure enough Jesus goes and he doesn't just heal her he brings her back from the dead and so these three people all experience this incredible miracle through the hands of Jesus and they don't really have a whole lot in common like we said one was a complete outcast a monster one was successful and influential and then one was a total outcast socially and spiritually and physically So they didn't have a lot in common, but the one thing they did have in common was that all three of them threw themselves at Jesus' feet. That's the one thing that tied them all together. And we saw last week that when people throw themselves at the feet of Jesus, that's when they experience mercy. That's when they experience healing. That's when they experience grace. And you know, those three people, more than anyone else we've seen so far in the Gospel of Mark, when they saw Jesus... They got it. It clicked with them. They knew how to respond to Jesus because the first thing they did was they threw themselves at his feet. They seemed to understand Jesus better than anybody else in the entire gospel up to this point. And today we're going to look at some people who didn't quite understand Jesus. And the thing is, the people who don't understand Jesus and the people who do understand Jesus are not the people you'd really expect. So if you have a Bible with you, open up with me to Mark chapter 6. And we're going to start in verse 7. And you saw on the screen that we're going through verses 7 through 52. Don't worry, we're actually not going to go through that many verses. I'm going to summarize about like 15 of those. So if you saw that and you're thinking, oh my gosh, don't worry, we'll be all right. So Mark chapter 6, verse 7. He called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. So here we see that up to this point, the disciples have been following Jesus around. They've been watching what he does. They've had a front row seat to every incredible thing that has happened, every confrontation, every teaching, every healing, every miracle. But now we're getting to a point where things are changing a little bit. Jesus is no longer content with these guys just sitting back and watching He says, you know what, guys, you've been with me for a good amount of time now. You've seen me teach, you've seen me do this, you've seen me do that. You know what, now's the time to take the training wheels off. So I'm going to give you the power, and you're going to go out, and you're going to start doing some ministry. No more of you just watching me do everything. And so they do it. And if you remember from the last chapter, talking about that guy who lives in the tombs, if Jesus tells these guys, hey, uh, you're going to go cast out demons now, they're probably thinking, "Uh, really? Uh, Not after what I just saw, I'm not. But Jesus sends them out, and they do it. He tells them what to bring. He tells them what not to bring. He tells them what to do when people accept them. He tells them what to do when people reject them. He makes it as simple as he possibly can for their first time going out and doing ministry without Jesus. And according to the passage, things go pretty well. Demons are cast out. People are healed. People respond pretty well to what the disciples are doing. And we see what happens when they return. Verse 30. Jump ahead to verse 30. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now you notice one thing that the apostles say when they return to Jesus. What they say is that they told him all that they had done and all that they had taught. It almost seems like the disciples are getting a little bit arrogant here. Because for the first time, they've been the ones performing the miracles. They've been the ones doing the teaching. And so they come back and they're like, hey, uh, Jesus, you know, went pretty well. You know, I mean, you know, I guess it could have gone better. But I mean, for my first time, you know, I, did, I did pretty darn good. So Jesus, and I just picture Jesus sitting there, and he kind of smirks, and maybe he looks down, and he just says, <sighs> good job, guys. You did a great job. You know what? You must be tired from all that hard work you did, putting into healing people, and all that hard work that you had, teaching people. You must be so tired using all of your own strengths to do all that. You know what? You guys need to sit down. You need to rest. In fact, you need to eat. You look famished. It's all kind of said tongue-in-cheek, but the disciples are thinking, yeah, you know what, Jesus, you're right, I am tired. That was pretty difficult. And yeah, I mean, you know, it's pretty impressive that you do it, but eh, I did it. But yeah, it's tiring. So let's, let's rest and get something to eat. So they go to a desolate place by themselves. But before we pick up in that story, look in verses 14 through 29. I'm going to summarize these verses for you. If you remember back in the first week of the Gospel of Mark, we talked about John the Baptist. John the Baptist was a prophet of sorts who came before Jesus, who came around on the scene before Jesus did. And John the Baptist's job is to prepare the way for the ministry that Jesus is going to perform, to make paths straight. To get people ready for what God is doing in the world. That new thing that God is bringing. And that new thing is Jesus himself. Now John the Baptist does not really meet the best end as we see in this passage. Because he's going around and he's doing ministry. And we haven't heard much about him ever since the first chapter. But in the meantime we find that King Herod has taken his brother's wife Herodias. Herod and Herodias. They're a beautiful couple. Herod takes Herodias. And John the Baptist does not really take kindly to this. He's vocally opposed to Herod taking his brother's wife. He thinks that's an ethical issue. He thinks that's unbecoming of someone who's supposed to be the leader in that day. And so John the Baptist speaks out against him. And Herod does not take too kindly to it. So Herod decides that he's going to throw John the Baptist in jail. He's not going to kill him. Because John the Baptist is a pretty popular guy. He's got a pretty decent amount of followers, so you can't just kill the guy. But you can shut him up. And you can make a statement by at least throwing him in jail and slapping him on the wrist. So Herod does that. But Herodias is not so kind to John the Baptist. Herodias hatches this little scheme using her daughter to get John the Baptist killed. And so they're at a party, and this thing happens... And Herod is convinced that he has to kill John the Baptist because he makes this covenant with Herodias' daughter. So John the Baptist is killed. Herodias gets her way. And what we see in the story of John the Baptist is that a life-serving God does not always yield immediate rewards in this life. But the rewards that those who serve God truly look for don't come in this life anyway. They come in what's next. And what we see in John the Baptist is a little bit of a foreshadowing of what's going to happen to Jesus. Serving God doesn't always end well in this life, but it ends well in the next life. So moving on in our passage, back to the apostles, verse 33. Many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd and he began to teach them many things now this isn't anything new in the gospel of mark jesus has a hard time going around without people following him without crowds forming and at this point not only do you have people wanting to see jesus you might have people wanting to see the apostles because they just got done doing some pretty cool stuff And so this crowd runs to where Jesus and the apostles are going. They can't get alone. They can't get that time of rest. They can't get that time of sitting back and eating and regaining their strength and regaining their energy. But Jesus is not content with just leaving them there. Yeah, sure, he's probably tired. Yeah, sure, the apostles are tired. Yeah, sure, they're all hungry. But he sees them and he sees these people as sheep without a shepherd. Now this isn't the first time in scripture that religious leaders are compared to shepherds or God's people are compared to sheep. A few years ago, Olivia and I went on a mission trip to inner city Indianapolis and we worked at a halfway house and we were painting this halfway house and fixing up this halfway house for men who were recovering from drug addictions or had just gotten out of jail or trying to get you know back on their feet. And we met a guy in the neighborhood who was kind of the unofficial neighborhood pastor. And he lived in the neighborhood, he did ministry to the guys in the halfway house, to the people who lived nearby, and he was this old man, and in inner-city Indianapolis, he literally carried a staff everywhere he went. He carried a staff, and it wasn't a cane, it was a straight-up staff. And it was not so that he could walk more easily, it was not because of any health issue. He told us the reason he carried it is because he wanted the people in that neighborhood to view him as their shepherd. And he was the type of shepherd that was trying to bring these people to Christ. So shepherds are not just in Scripture. Some people take it pretty seriously, the whole role of shepherd. But I I don't plan on doing that. I don't think our elders will plan on doing that. But this guy took it seriously. Now, in Scripture, there is an example of a shepherd in Ezekiel chapter 34. So if you want to turn there with me, Ezekiel chapter 34, here we see an example of a not-so-good shepherd. Ezekiel chapter 34, verse 1 the lost you have not sought and with force and harshness you have ruled them so in Ezekiel 34 we see an example of not good shepherds and you notice what they rule with they rule with force and with harshness you know what the opposite of force and harshness are the opposite of that is compassion and that's how Jesus looks at these sheep Jesus looks at his sheep with compassion, not a sheep to be taken advantage of, not a sheep to be used for their own good, not a sheep to be used for personal benefit and only their personal interests. He views the sheep with compassion. And the question is that ultimately, if you were a follower of Christ, in some way, shape, or form, you too are a shepherd, whether you realize it or not. If you're a small group leader, in a sense, you're a shepherd to the people in your small group. If you're an elder, you're a shepherd to the people of this church. If you're a pastor, I'm the shepherd. Jeff's a shepherd. If you're a spouse, you're a shepherd to your family. You're a shepherd to your kids. Are you ruling with compassion or are you ruling with force and with harshness? Do you beat the sheep while they're down? Or do you look out for them? Because sheep back then were not really viewed as the smartest animals in the world. In fact, this would be kind of insulting if you're one of those people and Jesus says, uh, hey, you're kind of like sheep. This would not be all that flattering. And so Jesus looks at them and he says they're sheep, but it wouldn't be flattering because sheep were known for being stubborn, they were known for being thick headed, they were known for being annoying and dumb, quite frankly. And so these sheep are not really looked highly upon, but Jesus views them as sheep. He views himself as a shepherd. And the reason that they aren't that smart, the reason that they have that reputation, is because sheep often would wander away. They would wander away from the flock. They weren't contained in fences. They would wander away, and they would fall in holes. They would wander away, and they would get taken away by predators. And so it really isn't all that flattering for Jesus to call these people sheep. But he does just that. He's viewing himself as their guide. He's viewing himself as their protector. He's viewing himself as their provider. And if you're married, if you have kids, if you have friends, if you're a small group leader, if you're an elder, if you're a pastor, if you're a follower of Christ, in a sense, you're a shepherd to somebody. Whether you realize it or not, you are a shepherd to somebody. Are you leading with compassion or force and harshness? That's the question we all have to ask. Moving on in our passage, verse 35. When it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. Once again, we see that Jesus is taking the training wheels off. He's giving the disciples the opportunity to do ministry. The same way that he sent them out two by two, that went pretty well. He now realizes that these people need food. The disciples realize that the sheep need food. And so they come to Jesus and they say, Hey, Jesus, we need you to take care of these sheep. We need you to feed them. And he says, You know what, guys? I'm training you to be shepherds. What would you do? What would you do as the shepherd? How are you going to take care of these sheep? And they don't really respond very well. They said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? 200 denarii was eight months of salary, basically, for someone in that day. And so the whole point they're trying to get across is that it's completely impractical for Jesus to ask them to feed these people. It makes no sense. There's no way they could do it. But that's what Jesus tells them to do. So Jesus, once again, With a big sigh, (sighs) how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. So Jesus views his sheep and he tells them to go sit down in the green grass. And it's kind of random that Mark would include this detail about green grass. Why would he include that? Well, we've already seen an example of bad shepherds in Ezekiel 34. Are there examples of good shepherds anywhere else in scripture? The answer is yes. And that green grass passage might remind you of it because it's Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. Mark does not include that detail of green grass just for the heck of it. He includes it because he's trying to show the difference between a good shepherd and a bad shepherd. And the good shepherd is Jesus. The bad shepherd is the one who rules with force and with harshness. The religious leaders at times, they ruled with force and with harshness. They did not show compassion. They took advantage of the sheep. They didn't protect the sheep. They didn't guide the sheep. They use the sheep for their own selfish interests. And what we see here is that Mark is making this comparison and saying that, you know what? Jesus is the true good shepherd. That's who the good shepherd is. He's the model for what a shepherd should be. He's the model for you as you try to shepherd your kids or your spouse, your entire family, your friends, your small group, your church. Jesus is the model shepherd. And we see him lying these sheep in green pastures, laying them down, providing for them, guiding them, protecting them. Verse 41, taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and set a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. So Jesus provides for these sheep. And one thing that's interesting is that it says that there were 5,000 men there. Now we think of that and we think, oh, well, they fed 5,000 mouths. That's pretty impressive. And it is impressive. But what's more impressive is that really there were more than 5,000 mouths to feed because it says 5,000 men. It doesn't include women and children. Back then, it wouldn't have been important to include women and children. And so really, this is way more than 5,000. Not that it's not already impressive enough with five loaves and two fish. But Jesus provides for them. He takes care of them. He gives the disciples an example of what a good shepherd does. And then what happens after that? Verse 45, the last couple verses we're going to cover Here we see the disciples just don't get it. Their hearts are hardened. The first test, they kind of pass, but then they have a bad attitude about it because they heal people and they anoint people with oil and they preach, but then they become arrogant. The second test of, well, guys, what are you going to do when people are hungry? They fail that test because they have no clue what to do. And then the third test, they're on the sea. And when they see Jesus, instead of trusting that he's going to take care of them, they think he's a ghost. They blow it. Once again, they fail. And, you know, we look at the disciples sometimes and we think, man, you know what? If I had seen all the stuff they saw, my faith would be like a billion times stronger. I mean, seeing, you know, feeding of 5,000 men, not including women and children, you know, performing these healings with the power of Jesus. They see him walking on the water. How can they not get it? How do they misunderstand? These guys are knuckleheads. And the truth is that it's easy for us to say that. But how often are we the same way? How often are we so obsessed with fixing things on our own? How often are we so obsessed with our own interests? How often are we so obsessed with proving ourselves and being self-made men that we completely miss what God is doing around us? That we completely miss what God is doing right in front of us, in our families, in our work, in our schools, in our churches. We miss the point so much. Why do we do it? Why do we not get it? Because sometimes we're sheep. We're stubborn. We're thick-headed. We get lost. We run away. We fall in a hole, and we have to have the shepherd come and pick us up out of it. And that's exactly what's happening to the disciples here. They forget that when they're on the stormy sea, they forget that their shepherd leads them by still waters. They forget that he restores their soul. Their hearts are hardened. When you're in the hard times of life, when you're on that sea of life and you're making headway painfully, and the wind is against you and the water is choppy and rough, how often do you trust in the shepherd? How often do you trust that He leads you beside still waters? How often do you trust that He's going to take care of you? How often do you trust that He's going to lift you up and pick you up out of that? A lot of times we don't because we try to rely on ourselves. We try to rely on how we can fix things, what we can do. But really, the challenge is trust in the shepherd. When times are hard, trust in the shepherd. When times are great, trust in the shepherd. Because he is the good shepherd. He's the example for us. He's the example for us as we strive to be the shepherds we are called to be. He leads us through the valley of the shadow of death. He restores our soul. He leads us in paths of righteousness. All we have to do is trust in him. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this day. Thank you for all that you've blessed us with. So many things that we don't deserve. God, we lift this time up to you. And I pray that as we leave here today, we can learn to trust in you more. When the waters of life are hard, when we're in that boat and we're making headway painfully and the wind's against us, I pray that we'll trust that you're the shepherd, that you're watching over us, that you're guiding us, that you're protecting us, you'll provide for us. You'll lead us to green pastures, you'll lead us to still waters. You will do all that if we can just trust in you. Just trust that you truly will take care of us. God, we lift up mothers to you today. As Joshua mentioned earlier, we lift up those mothers who this day is hard for them. We pray that as hard as it is, They'll trust that they have a good shepherd. We love you. We thank you for your son, Jesus, the true shepherd. We ask these things in his name. Amen. At the end of the service, we're going to have a couple of our elders standing on the side of the room. If you're prepared to put your trust in Christ, if you're prepared to trust in him as the shepherd, we hope you'll talk to them.